The brain is brilliant in developing ways to cope. You know, I think it's I think it's fascinating. And that humans across countries and eating disorders don't discriminate. We've heard that a million times, culturally, right? That we've all come to the same solution for our distress is fascinating to me. Welcome to the Juggling the Chaos of Recovery podcast, where we focus on health and wellness and overcoming all types of addictions. You're in the right place if you're a mom, dad, sibling, or caregiver who has a loved one who is or was struggling with an eating disorder or any other kind of addiction. In a time where everything seems heavy, I'm here to bring you a very real yet lighthearted take on what the heck we're all supposed to do with our lives while we care for our loved ones who are struggling. One thing holds true throughout it all. You can't juggle the chaos without smiling, at least a little bit. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, Moira Gorski. Thank you for coming back to this Juggling the Chaos of Recovery podcast. So thankful for all of you and really thankful for the days, as I always say, the days that I can bring a guest on here to share their wisdom and to just have a conversation about this world of addictions, eating disorders, trauma, all kinds of things. And I was wonderfully introduced to my guest today, um, Abigail Jones, by my niece, you can go back and I interviewed her for the podcast here and um, uh, she is my niece and she has been in different treatment facilities. And Abigail was a therapist at one of her treatment facilities. And she so kindly said, I think you should talk to Abigail. She's got, again, wonderful wisdom. And as I've shared many times before on this podcast, I love, I don't love when people go through an eating disorder, but I love that when they come out on the other side, they, um, as Abigail says, I personally am in recovery from an eating disorder that has defined not only the years of my life that I was, that it was active, um, but my career and my entire life going forward. I'm passionate about anti-diet culture and taking the shame out of the recovery process. I mean, that's beautiful. I'm so glad you're here, Abigail, because those that have gone through hell and back should be those on the other side, helping those that are coming through. So, Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, so happy to be here, honestly. Any opportunity to, I mean, early in my recovery journey, I had a counselor say to me that the way that we get to recovery is like, you talk, you feel, you rock the boat. So any opportunity that I have to talk, feel, and rock the boat, like I'm on board for, honestly. Mm -hmm. That's what recovery is about. Talk, feel, and rock the boat. So what's the rock? I I get the talk and I get the feel. What's the rock the boat? I think the rock the boat is that the, the idea behind what she was saying is that the family system tends to get sick when we see things that we know like intuitively are not right and we don't talk about it, right? Mm. It's like the elephant in the, in the middle of the room, right? And I, I think that that's classically like, you know, the enabling family around something, you know, in the mm. middle of the room, right? But that's the rocking of the boat. Okay. You know what I mean? More than anything is like talk about the very thing that the family doesn't want to talk about. And that's where healing will start to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Thanks for saying that. Um, I agree with you. We can talk about that in a little bit, but yep. as, as I always do, let's start with, um, let's start with your story because that, mm-hmm. as you said, so um, beautifully in there, I mean, it, it helped to certainly define the life that you had for a while, but also define mm-hmm. where you're at today. So that's what I like to start with, with my guest is, you know, tell us about your story Again, not all the, you know, share what you are comfortable sharing mm-hmm. and, and, and what can be a value to the listeners that are, that are listening. Totally. Um, yeah. So uh, my, you know, my family has quite a history of eating disorder and I think that they, 
I think often, I think families, they just don't really talk about, like I said, rock the boat. Like we don't talk about mental illness. And I think our generation finally has started to really have a big conversation about mental health. Um, but my family has quite a history of eating disorder, I would say, um, whether it was diagnosed or not. So I come by an eating disorder really honestly, honestly, I think biologically. And like, as like professionally, I've really started to like understand like a biopsychosocial model, right? So biologically I was primed for one. And then socially I was raised in like an environment that did have really high expectations, um, pretty competitive environment, I would say. Like I went to a private school um, yeah. And I just like was around educated people. And so I just think, and then I just had this very perfectionistic template that I was born with a really sensitive, empathetic, perfectionistic, people pleasing, aware template, just primed from day one to develop an eating disorder. And my eating disorder started, um, pretty young, I would say acts so of the behaviors started as restriction around about age 11. And I had had and which I've also found a lot with clients, right? But I've had um, in my young adult, I'm in mean, my childhood, I was diagnosed with ADHD, right? And as I look back and I like kind of have a clinical eye at this point, I see that I was just a really, honestly, I think I was a really anxious kid that couldn't sit still. And more than anything, I think I was probably misdiagnosed with ADHD. And I think that that anxiety I carried with me through my whole childhood and slowly, I think the eating disorder as I now see it, right, became the solution more than anything to that anxiety that I had. And I think I was born with, um, but the eating disorder started as restriction at about age 11 because I had had anxiety. Um, it went missed for years, honestly. And I didn't, I mean, you're 11, I'm 11. I don't have the insight to know that what I have is really a full-blown anorexia diagnosis. Right. But so I would, you know, severely restrict my food intake at that point, a piece of my story and a piece of a lot of client stories. And as is common with eating disorders is I developed like pretty severe um, obsessive compulsive disorder at age probably 11, honestly, or even before the eating disorder. Um, and so and it would tie into the eating disorder a lot with counting calories or um, like exercising at a certain like in, in like uh, like the multiple of six. Um, and so that's always been kind of a part of my story is um, co-occurring obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, but the anorexia went unnoticed, untreated for a while um, until my weight dropped pretty darn low. And my mom took it in her own hands to just put weight back on me. And at that point, my eating disorder went and I, I kind of view eating disorders on a spectrum, right? Anorexia is on one end binge eating is on the other end. And then there's everything in between. And like, yes, there's this hierarchy, I think in the eating disorder land, I think, you know, everybody wants to be on the anorexia side and you know what I mean? And there's just, there's judgment, even within the eating disorder world of which is better eating disorder to have. None of them is the answer. And really opposites are the same and they all serve the same function. Right. And so everything else is just eating disorder, just, you know, nonsense. Mm -hmm. Um, but I I flung completely to the other side. Right. And we, I, I see it all the time with clients. It's such a competitive disease, right? And it's, it's, I mean, whether you're binge eating or whether you're restricting your food, it is the exact same thing. It's the exact right. same, in my opinion, right? <laughs> right. Well, and I've, I've also seen with other, I've interviewed a lot of people that have other type of addictions. Like it's mm. the same stuff. It doesn't totally. matter if you're eating, not eating, drinking, not drinking, drugs, sex, mm-hmm. porn. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the same type of thing. We're all you know, whatever it is, you know, we're all trying to cover up the pain or avoid this or, 
hundred percent. And I like the way I've started to see it and the way I explain it to families and clients is that the eating disorder is not the problem, right? Like the, the, the behaviors, the restriction, the binge eating, the purging, whatever it is, like that is our solution to the problem. Right. And so alcohol purging restriction, right? Like that's the solution to the problem. Right. And I, you know, my problem, as I understand it, right. Yes. Anxiety. I think self-esteem, I think, um, I mean, I don't know. I think I'm still learning really, truly, you know, what it is. Um, but more than anything, I've realized that that was never my problem. That was my solution. Mm -hmm. Um, and it worked for a long time until it really didn't. And like I said, you know, defined my whole life. Um, but it's, so it really turned into binge eating. Um, and then that, I just think once you're on the eating disorder spectrum and you start to engage in binge eating, it's just shameful. And I just didn't talk to anybody about it. And, um, you know, gained a significant amount of weight. This was in high school. Unfortunately, it was just horrible, like the timing of it. And I was bullied for my weight um, at times. And so, and I really like, like I was powerless. I was powerless to stop the binge eating, honestly. And even though I had had this history of anorexia, like it was elusive, honestly, I couldn't, I couldn't get back to like this desired behavior. Um, and then eventually in college, I did start purging I mean, I would use anything on the spectrum, honestly. I mean, I would use it all. I would use anything to control my weight. I mean, obsessively weighing myself every day. Um, I mean, every classic eating disorder symptom under the sun. And can, can I just ask you to, like, just to, when you said you were diagnosed with ADHD or you were misdiagnosed with that, mm -hmm. um, and I bring that up because of late, my daughter Again, I want her to tell her story, but there's been some thought about because she has, you know, she has anorexia and she has a very strong OCD component right now. Totally. And now they're looking at her saying, well, do you have ADHD? And is that medication like that? Could, could that help you? And then also a friend of mine sent me a couple of articles about kind of late, what was exactly like adult women uh, with eating disorders and different anxiety that were never diagnosed having ADHD and stuff like that. Yeah. So it just, it's been coming through my sphere right now. And so yeah, that's why I bring it up because there is this connection. There is a connection. I don't know what it is in my personal story. Like, I don't know. Cause I, I was a good enough student. I think, I think, I think my mom hundred percent, I had ADHD but I think as I've grown up as an adult, that it was anxiety, honestly, because I remember laying in bed at like young, young age. And I talk, and there's a lot of eating disorder clients that also have this experience. And I would have like intrusive thoughts about like, my parents are going to die while I'm sleeping, or there's something under my bed or in like to the level, like, not just like, I'm afraid of the dark, but like to, I can't sleep. And like, I went years of my childhood, like afraid to close my eyes because of what would happen in the dark. Right. And so, and I don't really have a trauma history. And so it, a childhood trauma history, mm -hmm. I guess I would say. So it's, I, I see it as anxiety more than anything I do. And then I struggle with, I mean, cause at this point, I mean, the, really the, the medication for 80, like ADHD is a stimulant, right. And like to put a stimulant with anorexia is just a disaster. You know what I mean? Because it's a, it's, it's about, you know, and I see clients all the time that are stimulant seeking in order to control their weight, or, you know, they're, they're trying to fail their ADHD exam, you know, that you get at residential in an attempt to get a stimulant, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So it's like, 
But then, but then I guess the question is then, cause I know that like I've seen just to get regular, I hate to use that word, but like people that just, that have ADHD um, right. that present a certain way, but then they get a stimulant, but it tends to calm them down. Yep. So like, I've seen that with OCD, with our daughter, with others, it's like, well, how do you get them mm-hmm. to stop obsessing? How do you get them to slow down? How do you think, I think that there's a component, this, my, you know, unbiased, uh, uneducated opinion or my expert by experience opinion, yep. like the walking and the pacing and the obsessive is a form of purging, you know? I mean, it is again, OCD, like, so compulsions and intrusive thoughts really, cause that comes, OCD comes in two forms, right? Like those really morbid intrusive thoughts or the compulsions, again, a solution to the problem. Right. And so like, I, I view the problem more than anything as, as racing thoughts, anxiety. Right. But again, maybe, maybe underneath that, there really is ADHD. And that's what I've been trying to, you know what I mean? Medicate in a way. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's possible. Right. And when I do take a stimulant, I do calm down a little bit. I'm not going to lie. Right. So like there is evidence and, and stimulants as a child, cause I did, I was put on Ritalin probably at age five. Right. And which is super young. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was productive for me. Right. So it, it caused me to sit still. So it's the component is there. Right. Mm-hmm. I also struggle with like, you know, firm diagnoses sometimes. Right. Because I just see this, like, a profile, right. Of like kind of young, young anxiety, intrusive thoughts, comorbid OCD, high expectations, perfectionistic template. Right. And it's just, so it's hard to know, is this, is this just the eating disorder? Like maybe this was the eating disorder from day one. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? I do know exactly what you mean. And I, (laughs) and I think it's worth again, having a discussion about, and yet after seven years with our daughter struggling, it's like, okay, can there be a firm diagnosis? Can there be a, okay, maybe this is it because all these other things, like we were talking about, like mm-hmm. medication upon medication, let's try this, let's try this. And, oh, it's an, you know, it it's, it's takes three to four weeks for an uptick. And so you got to try it for that. And then it doesn't work. And then you have to wean yourself off. So it's like all of this experimentation that totally. like to try to find an answer, which again, interesting enough, like you talk about, well, the eating disorder is just the, solution to the problem. So you really need to peel back the onion and get to the problem as opposed to looking at what are the behaviors. So, yeah. Cause we don't like, I mean, really, cause like you think like doctors don't chase symptoms, right? Like symptom chasing can only work for so long, right? Before it's like, okay, we got to heal the broken bone, right? Like you can't just take pain medication and hope your, your bone's going to heal. Right. And I feel like sometimes that's what happens with eating disorders, right? Is that like we just address the symptoms, right? But the symptoms were always the solution mm-hmm. to, to the distress, right? right. right. That's, the, that's the distress tolerance skill mm-hmm. <laughs> is purging or restricting or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's, the brain is brilliant in developing ways to cope. You know, I think it's, I think it's fascinating, right? right. right. And, that, and that humans across countries and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, eating disorders don't discriminate. We've heard that a million times, right? Like culturally, right? Like that we've all come to the same solution for our distress is fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, yeah. And I'm part of different um, Facebook support groups and mm-hmm. yeah, that is in international ones. And it doesn't matter if you live in Europe or Africa or Australia or the U S they yep. all the same, all the so, same, all yeah. the same. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. what, what in the end, as you got through college and things like that, what was, not the ticket out because there's no like one ticket out, but what, 
you know, what made that difference that you shifted your thinking, shifted your mindset to that, okay, this really isn't working or I'm sick of this life or, mm-hmm. you know, what was it for you? It, um, well, I dropped out of college three times in order to seek treatment. Um, so, and I've done everything from IOPs, multiple IOPs growing up, you know, through high school to three residentials. And so I think ultimately I was able to look at the consequences for sure. Right. For me, like I just interpersonally more than anything, like I just, I, more than anything, I wanted to feel connected to people. And I spent my whole life feeling so disconnected from everyone. And that was devastating to me. I also think my education was really important to me and I kept, and I couldn't, I I couldn't stop the eating disorder enough to get my head above the tidal wave. And then I think that it was kind of a perfect storm. I think that it was the group of women, honestly, that were at this particular residential treatment who are still my best friends. There's three women in particular, right. That have changed my life. And, and I think it was them. I think it was this long, I was at four and a half months of residential followed by a year and a half of a sober living environment. And so it was long, it was almost, it was two year treatment episode. Right. And so like that is a blessing, right? The longer the treatment episode, the better the potential outcome. And I think in that I made connections with women in recovery that spoke my language. And I didn't think anybody spoke my language, right? So you just, I mean, yes, other people have eating disorders, but you don't quite believe that anybody could really have the crazy brain that you do. Mm -hmm. Um, You know what I mean? You're just like, yeah, you say you have it, but like, you have no idea how crazy it is up here. Right. Right. And then I realized like, oh my God, these women are, you know, have this crazy dialogue that I do. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the shame reduction, I think of that. Yeah. And then I think family systems work and understanding my family and, mm-hmm. and my relationships and which is a lifelong process, but. And do you, and, and speaking of family, I mean, were, were they involved or do they, were they involved mm-hmm. to a great extent or were they I like, think forget they were. it? No, they were, they were very, very involved my mom struggles with like anxiety and depression. And so I think that she had, she had a clue into mental health at least and my level of powerlessness. So I never felt like she was always supportive in that way. Um, And they, I think that they, they wanted to understand they, they wanted to, and they did everything in their power and they still do to try and understand. I think unless you've been in, you've been in it, like, it's just, it's so hard to, fully, fully understand. I think it's the same thing with addiction, Mm -hmm. right? Like I think families are just baffled by the behavior and the pain that, you know, we put ourselves through. And that to me feels like a Tuesday sometimes, you know what I mean? So it's just like, I think that there's always a disconnect, but they were always there. And I think that they were just limited, right. In their ability to fully understand me. Mm -hmm. And I had to get to acceptance in that. And and I'm still every day I work on that. Mm -hmm that my mom, right. That like, she gets it, but like, there's a piece of her that doesn't fully get it. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. heartbreaking. I think for every kid, there's, there's a possibility that, you know, when, well, not a possibility, very strong possibility when you have, you know, an eating disorder and you're away from the family mm-hmm. or you've had a, you know, a major illness, it tears the family apart. 
And so there is that feeling that like, okay, this is all my fault. And all I want is my family back together. And they don't want anything to do with me because they keep seeing me go in and out and things like that. So like, how am I supposed to get over that? Oh, well, you're just supposed to recover. Well, there's this, yeah, but I'm trying not to, you know, it's, it's a lot of stuff there. Yeah. I mean, like an eating disorders are one of those, like the, the disease that tells you, you don't have the disease and that tells you that it's not that bad. And you know what I mean? So it's just like, you want to recover, but like the disease itself, like is telling you not to, like, it's like one of those few, just, I mean, it's probably the only disease with addiction, right. Where it just convinces you that it's, it's going to be your solution. And, and I think the out the family, it's devastating. I know it's devastating. My mom, I just, I think has watched me at times self-destruct and push people away and, and push relationships that are, you know, supportive and wonderful away to cater to my eating disorder, mm-hmm. you know? And so That's- I think, yeah. And that's hard as a, as a mother, it's hard to watch that totally. and hard to not, as I did a lot at the beginning was jump in and say, well, come on, honey, let's not do that. Or don't do that. You know, trying to help so much. And that's oh, what, and that's a big reason why I started this podcast is everything that I've learned to take care of myself and to sit on this other side, you know, cheering the other person on, mm-hmm. but saying, you know what, you got to do it. You got to do the work. And I had a therapist from one of the places that my daughter was at when I spoke with her. I mean, I still have her in here as um, whatever she said, but it's like therapist OCD or therapist hopeful or something like that. And um, she just said, she, it's a Abby OCD recovered. And she said, do you put my phone number in your phone and you know that you can call me anytime. And you know that I had OCD stronger Mm -hmm. than your daughter and Mm -hmm. I've recovered. Mm -hmm. And so there is hope, but she said, you know what? So never lose hope. But Mm -hmm. she said, do give up that expectation that when things start to get better, then they're really going to be better on this trajectory and everything's going to, and it was hard for me to hear, but I hold on to that. And I was so thankful that she told me that because I tell that to other friends too. And they say, well, how do you get through? I go, well, I never lose hope, but yeah, I mean, she's a little better now or, you know, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's such a terrible thing. I don't have expectations that it's going to be, you know, and I don't, you know, again, I don't say that in a mean way about my daughter in case you're listening, Anna, but you know, it's just one of those things that that's the way you have to work with as a caregiver and as a mother, a father or whatever, like we never lose hope. Like we are, I told her yesterday, I am, I'm the biggest cheerleader that you have. Mm-hmm. But with anything, we have to do things, you know, share kindness, share love with no expectation that that other person is going to share that love back. It's 100%. the same type of thing, you know, totally. because totally. we can't control what the other person's doing. All we can do is control what we're doing. Yeah, it's really hard. It's, it's, and you're right. Eating disorder recovery looks like one step forward, two steps back. And it's just a dance. It's a dance. And it's a tightrope. You feel like you're on a tightrope and you do, you take one step forward and then you take two steps back and the family. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, I think it's just really, really hard to watch, honestly. Yeah. I mean, it's ups and downs and they say, right. Like, I think it's on average, it's four residential treatments, right. To treat an eating disorder. And that it takes like, and I say this and I've lived it, right. Like that it takes and some, I don't even know who told me this or how factual it is, but I've held on to it. Like it's gold. Because it, honestly, it reduced my shame that it takes 10 years to recover from an eating disorder once you really commit. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And I get that. Right. Because like I would say in 2012 was when I like was like, I, I, I am done. Like I, like I just, it was bad. Like there's nothing like, I think that people think that there's a glamorousness to it. Right. And there is nothing glamorous about eating disorders. I mean, they are, they're ugly and they're gross and they, and they just like, I mean, behind closed doors. I mean, it's just the ugliest thing, honestly, more than anything. I mean, you're just destroying your body. But I've heard that before. I mean, when we first started down this journey, I remember being at a local place here and the mom was looking into, uh, we were at Linden Oaks and she was, you know, it's kind of, it's not a residential place. It's kind of I know a, Linden Oaks. I know because there's so few resources in Michigan, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of a holding pad. I mean, you go in there and, yeah. um, but she was looking at another residential place and I think her daughter had been struggling for 10 years or she was going to her 10th place. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, come on. But I mean, here we are. are. So it's, um, it's, it's something that you just don't, sometimes you just don't want to not so much admit, but you just don't want to accept the fact that that's what the reality is. But like you said, the, the, the averages show that that's what the reality is. For me, it did bring me comfort, right? Because like, by the time I did get treatment, like I was so sick, like to the point where I, I never thought, I mean, I was hopeless. I was like, there is no way you could unwind this. Like, you know what I mean? Like when you watch your daughter, like deep in an, an episode of OCD, like the amount of woundness that it takes to get there, you know what I mean? Like, so I just thought like nobody could possibly unwind this brain. Like, and I'm just going to have to settle for like kind of a subpar like existence where I can just like kind of tolerate existence, honestly, like, and not want to die. And maybe that's just the way I get to live this life. Mm -hmm. Right. But like, I would say like that, and that's why like this like 10 year window that they gave me, it's like over time, like as I started to fight and I would, it is, it's about fighting every last choice that you make with food and, and reframing it and challenging it. And every, like, I mean, cause really the treatment for OCD is exposure response. Right. And so like anytime, like my brain says count to six, I'll count to five. Anytime. You know what I mean? I, I, I disobey. That's what mm-hmm. I did because mm-hmm. the eating disorder is just a, a list of rules. Right. And I just started to disobey. And that's kind of was my way out is I disobeyed to the point where it lost grasp enough. Right. Like I honestly feel like I had to mind game my way out with the support of like a really non-judgmental, shame-free environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. But it took, but seriously, I say to my clients, like it's taken like, so it's been 13 years and like, there's, there's the argument in the field, right. Is it, are you recovered? Are you in recovery? Right. There's that whole thing. And I, I just stand in that I'm in recovery, right. Because I know that this has been my brain since I was born. Right. And I know that I'm vulnerable and I, I never want to pretend like I, that, you know, I'm stronger than it is. Cause I'm not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but I like that. I nobody said that that they disobeyed. That's good. That's a really good. It's a good way for those that are listening to um to under kind of grasp that to kind of understand totally. that, you know. Totally. And um I mean, what have you seen because I know that you're again, you're very well educated with trauma, identity development, mood disorders, OCD, mm-hmm. you practice EMDR. You know, mm-hmm. I've heard so much about through interviews and things like that about well, about trauma, and we don't necessarily need to talk about trauma, but I really got like about identity because there have been athletes who they were an awesome dancer and then they broke their leg or, or they, uh, what was she, a skater? 
and she moved her family moved across country to Japan yeah. and she couldn't skate. Like all of a sudden her identity was gone. I mean, yeah. I've talked with, well, I don't know if you watched um, with the Olympics coming up, uh, Michael Phelps uh, documentary, right? The- I actually have not seen the documentary, but as you're talking, I'm thinking about Michael Phelps. Yeah. You, well, you should see that. Cause what is it? The price of gold. It's yeah. like the idea that like, as they say in there, I think Katie, who's the skeleton um, athlete, who has, you know, the sled, you know, that they're face down, down the yeah, whatever yeah, psycho. Yeah. It's like, wow, so I know. So crazy. But um, she said, you're on a bus and you're yeah. going to your event and you realize when you come back, it's, it's over. over, but you're no longer like, it's over. Like kind of your identity is over. And it's a really, it's a very interesting, very, very well done documentary. So I recommend anybody watch yeah. that the price of gold, but it is that identity that you lose your identity. Mm-hmm. And Again, how, who are you without, you know, five, you know, Olympics to work for? Who am I if I can't be a dancer? And, and so, you know, I'd love to hear again, because we haven't really talked about on this podcast about kind of that identity development and whatnot, but I've seen within the eating disorder world and just in the culture these days that there's all of this kind of like an identity shifting or challenges or confusion or whatever. So can you talk a little bit to, to that? Yeah. I mean, I can talk like personally and then like, just like what I've seen, I think personally for identity in a lot of different ways with eating disorder. Right. Because like, I think at a certain point, I guess, as I look back, like in my life, like I self-esteem has always been a struggle. Right. And I think that I put it on myself in a lot of ways. I think for years I pointed fingers at like, you know, dad, you wanted me to do this and you wanted me, you know what I mean? It's just like, in the end, I had really high expectations for myself, super high. Right. And I think, I think some, and, and self-esteem issues that came with it. I never was good enough, blah, 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 blah. And I think that in the chase to people, please, I really didn't have an identity. Right. And then the eating disorder comes along, right. In this lack of identity and gives you a great identity. Right. And that's why I think that a piece of why the competitive piece is there, right. Is that like, this is who I am. And and I want to be the best at it. Right. Like I need to stand out. Like, this is my identity. This is who I am. This is who I've become. Right. And so like, if you're engaging in that behavior, like I got to do it times five. Right. Because like, I want to be the best. Right. Cause, and I think most people would eat, not most, that's a generalization, but I do think that I want to be the best. Right. And I'm not good enough is, is very like common in eating disorder, just like core beliefs. So eating disorder gives people an identity, I think, more than anything. It's a list of rules, right? There's there's a wonderful TED Talk called Life's Too Short to Count Your Cornflakes. I love it. It's just about a girl in recovery. Um, and she talks about how, like, I mean, the eating disorder comes along and you don't know who you are and you don't like yourself, what you do know about who you are. And I think about athletes, right, whose whole life has been tied to something and then they lose that and then it is, who am I, right? And that feels chaotic, right? And you think about an eating disorder is just a list of rules, right? You do do this, 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 in this very way at this amount to this number, and you're going to be okay. And you're going to be safe. Right. And right. And that feels like an identity. Right. And then you realize, even though it's, even though it's a lie, right? It's a lie. It's a yeah. lie. Right. And then, and that, but the, and I, but the yeah. lie becomes law, right? Yes, so. the lie becomes lie, And you believe that that's who you are. And like, and I think that that's, I would say almost every client of mine gets to a certain point where they go, Abigail, if I give this up, I'm just an empty voided hole. There's nothing to me, right? Mm -hmm. I'm nothing without this. And so why do you expect me to give this up? 
you know? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's hard. So yeah, I do think it, it gives you an identity when you don't have one, but it's so mm-hmm. false. It's so false, but it's so it's addictive. Right. And it's so- addictive and it, it wraps you up and um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I don't think there's enough talk about just what you said that, you know, you're a high schooler and you're just kind of like trying to figure things out anyway, find your place in this world, you know, maybe a little anxiety, a little depression or whatever, a little stress competitiveness. And then this comes along because it can be a distinct, again, as you listen to some of my earlier podcasts, again, a distinct, I was an athlete, I was a dancer, I was a this, and then it stopped. Mm-hmm. And so then I took this identity because that, you know, but it's that, I mean, that's kind of life. And sometimes it's, I think when people hear that, that's like, well, like what was, like what was wrong that she would develop, that your daughter would develop an eating disorder. And one of her therapists who I've told this story before, my husband will tell it um, because it's so, it's just, it sticks out. And I think it was so wrong that a therapist said, because my husband was like, can you help us? Like what, what's what's up with our daughter? Why is this happening? Or why did it happen? She goes, well, you know, there's no textbook. She said, it would just be easier. Like, like if she was raped or there was a trauma or something, it would be easier. Well, like what? Like if I could swear on this podcast, you know, I would throw the F-bomb around, but it's like, are you kidding me? We walked out and said, you're never seeing her again. Again. I mean, yes, there's a, whatever. I'm a nurse. So there's a, Here's diabetes. Here's a care plan. Here's a broken leg. Here's a care plan. But come on, you know, that was, you know, but um, yeah, it's right. And honestly, somewhere along, because I think we do get lost and stuck in the whys of mental illness a lot and mental health. And somewhere along the line, someone said to me also, like, it doesn't matter why the solution is the same. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like we may figure out why and we may never figure out why. And there's a way out regardless, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if we don't know why we have it, like, it's kind of an unimportant piece, right? Like, it's just like with like addiction, right? Like whether, whether you know why you drink or you don't drink the 12 steps is, is, it's not the only way, right? But like, that's the solution, right? Like Mm -hmm. you don't need to, you don't need to have a sign that says why to get into the 12 steps or for the 12 Mm -hmm. steps to work. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Right. So I think that we can, and I think that people with eating disorders use it kind of as like a, well, I can't recover until I know why I have it. And it's Mm -hmm. like, well, that's not true. You can, (laughs) you can. Right. Right. You can. And it's, again, you can't recover unless my dad talks to me. I can't recover unless I, you know, blah, 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 fill in the blanks. Um, But um, yeah, I also wanted to just point out because maybe people haven't heard, heard it mentioned here or heard about them and, or have a certain view of them because I know myself, like when you mentioned sober living, I was like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, what are, you know, this was again a couple of years ago when mm-hmm. a treatment program recommended that our daughter live at a sober living environment while she was doing the PHP. And I was like, sober living, like, isn't, aren't those like weird, like mm-hmm. drug house, or you're not drug houses, yeah, but you know, dr- or whatever. But the fact is I want people to hear that there are wonderful sober living environments that um, have a lot of support, have less support, you know, but there are wonderful kind of the train. I think that's part of this is again, my, my opinion. What I've seen is that there just isn't it. There's that transition when they come out of treatment and there's this PHP and the IOP, which is day program and then half a day program. And then it's like, Oh, then you're home. 
but really, do you have enough support at home? And you would think that the patient uh-huh. does, but they don't. And so if there's a sober living type of environment, which basically means, again, they're all addictions. So uh-huh. you're living a sober life, you're free of those addictions, uh-huh. but you have that accountability, you have that check-in, and you have that support of the people that live with you uh-huh. that are going through the same thing uh-huh. that you're going through, right? I mean, my I don't think I would have found recovery had I not lived in an environment like that. Like, I mean, honestly, that transitional home saved my life. And I think eating disorders also can have this elitism tied to them, right. Of like, because there is a high IQ tied to it, right. High IQ, Mm -hmm. high achievers, you know, like, again, there's like, you know, the, the hierarchy of mental illness, like, like anorexia is on top or something. I don't know. Right. Mm -hmm. But so I had to humble myself a lot. And also what it offered me was and I think this is important for probably everyone is that I got away from my family system. Right. And I have a great family system. Right. But I had to get away from the system because by the time I, you know, somebody ends up in treatment, the system isn't working. It's just not working anymore. Right. And that doesn't mean the players are bad players. Right. And I think that people get lost in that too, of like, you know, well, the family's sick. And so they need to, you know, it's just like, everybody's good and everybody's doing their best always. Right. I really believe that but I had to get out of my system and, and like get on my feet. Right. And then like reestablish, renegotiate my role within the system and living in a transitional living after five months of residential for a year and a half, like was amazing. And then I stayed out because this was all in California and my family was in Arizona and I stayed out in California for six years. And it was the best, I would say the strongest part of my recovery Mm -hmm. It was just like, yeah, like, I mean, I had to establish independence Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there needs to be way more of those sober living, I agree. transitional housing I agree. and things like that. That's not just, again, we need them for the unwed moms or the abused women and things like that that are hidden. And we don't, because there are several of those in my town, yeah. we don't know which houses they are, but there's they're protected. That's great. But we need more of this totally. because for that very reason to be able to get strong onto your feet Right. So, um, I mean, it took me 10 years to get that sick. Like who's going to get better in 30 days? Nobody, mm-hmm. nobody, you know what I mean? And so that's why, like, I mean, this place I'll call it out ocean recovery in Newport beach, like game changer mm-hmm. for me. I don't know. I don't know what the, you know, what the staff is like at this point. Right. But that setup of, you know, long-term residential and then long-term sober living with dietary support you know, we would go out to eat once a week with a dietitian, even through that year and a half of transitional living. Like, I mean, the exposure, it was just like slow exposure to the world. And like, we needed it. Right. Yeah, and there's a place here in Evanston um, called Yellow Brick. I've heard of it. Just, have you heard of it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's, it's, it's a transitional living place for emerging adults. And so they have, again, all types of mental illnesses. Now there's, Again, we're looking into, we're learning about it to share more and to also as a possibility, but mm-hmm. it is kind of, it's more than just an apartment where you live and check in, you know, when you come back mm-hmm. in from mm-hmm. being the night out, there is support. There's a lot of neuro work done. There's a lot more. And so it's costly, but insurance perhaps can pay. It's just mm-hmm. kind of a little bit of a roundabout way, but I was encouraged to hear about that because yeah. um, it's a newer uh, well, at least it's, and I learned about that through a support group who I put like one of my, you know, like rants out there, or my frustration posts out there as a mom. 
and somebody reached out. And that's what I love about that group is that she sent me a message and said, where are you at? Can I talk to you? I want to share this experience with you because it might, might help you. So. Yeah, I agree. Transitional living is, is like, like this gem that I feel like needs to be developed, honestly, Mm -hmm. because like we got it down for addiction. It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. Right. But like, I mean, eating disorder needs it too. Right. And the 12 steps, you know, being open to, because there are some 12 step programs that it's like, Hey, if you're not a drinker, you can't come to this meeting. Mm -hmm. It's like, what? I mean, I go to Al-Anon quite regularly and Mm -hmm. I find it. And I've been to another support group of moms. There were mostly moms there, but of kids that were, you know, drug addicts, but Mm -hmm. it's the same thing. Again, we're dealing with the same thing. And they were so welcoming to me that I was like, I'm so glad that I have that support. So I think there needs to be more openness with that too. You know, as we wrap up today, any other, um, you know, I love, I made notes of the Ted talk and again, the oceans recovery. And um, I know that you work at a couple of different Mm -hmm. um, outpatient facilities, but anything else that you feel like needs to be said or that you want to share in regards to your, you know, your help with those that struggle or even with your story that you feel like you want to make sure is said. I just think that, I mean, I like, I'm like infamously, maybe notoriously known for just like being an anti-shame warrior. And I think that that is just something that we all have to pay attention to is like our shame. And then I think along with that, like a self-inventory, like, and I think that like that has been a big piece of my recovery, right. Is like, what's my part? right? Yes, it's shameful. At times I have to own it, right? And then like speaking that part and just constantly taking a self-inventory of myself. I think that shame is the core of this more than anything. And I, whether that comes from trauma, we, we don't know, right? But um, I think that in having conversations early, like with kids, just about like, what what are these feelings, right? Like when you get embarrassed and like, you don't want other people to know that you're sad, you know what I mean? Like, that matters. It matters. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And so I think that, I think that just having earlier conversations about like, what are we feeling and what is shame and, you know. Well, because it's not just, again, within the eating disorder world. I mean, that's kind of like worldwide, like all the time. Like, um, again, I have a wellness business and I stay away from, you know, I stay away from that anti-diet stuff. And I, but I talk to people ever all the time about, Oh, but I do, you know, and they, they look at me like I was at a, a, at a get together the other day and somebody was talking she's like, Oh, I went to Dunkin' Donuts and I got, I got, you know, I got some coffee. Cause I like their, I don't know if they said they like their iced coffee there yeah. and then, uh, the, the hot coffee at McDonald's or whatever, but it was something like that. And then she said, yeah. and I wanted a little bit of a donut and she goes, don't listen to this. I go, I don't care. Like, there's no shame, like whatever you choose, but that's in adult life like here. you have to justify like i mean right. even in talking about so, but i didn't get a donut you know what right. i mean it's because like, they know i'm the the healthy one i'm like yeah. don't know. you don't but it's it's all over so it's everywhere. really yeah everywhere which i do love these movements i love the anti diet culture movement like all over social media like i love you know what i mean and i think it makes a difference i think it does you know and i think talking about diets how they don't work right and you know, the number one, I think this is important to know the number one predictor of starting an eating disorder is starting a diet. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like, I mean, diet culture has, you know, and growing up in the nineties, like 
I feel like that diets were a big, like just got big in the nineties, right. Mm. For summary, it was like the Kate Moss, Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen era of just like waifness, you know? Yeah. Yep. And like, we just, I think diets destroyed us. And, you know, if a diet worked, we wouldn't have 5,000 of them. We would have stopped at, you know, South beach. We wouldn't have intermittent fasting and keto. You know what I mean? I know. And it wouldn't be like this huge industry. No, because we would have one thing and we would have stuck with it to lose right. weight. Right. Right. It wouldn't be like every January, like, Hey, here here come the ads again. I'm like, no, if it wasn't such a huge industry or yeah, if they worked. Yeah. yeah, I'm with you on that. Such great, such great conversation, Abigail. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. And really great. Um, just open, honest conversation. This is what we need to have mm-hmm. more of. I'm so grateful for you because this is what I wanted to do with this podcast. And I'm so grateful for you coming into my niece's life because I know that you had a profound impact on her mm-hmm. um, health and recovery. And I really yeah. appreciate that because she's, you know, I mean, she's she's a wonderful gal. She's been through a, a rough road. And um, I know when she came home from the ranch, uh, she was a different person. And it's really, you know, it put her on a, I really believe like there's that quote, like we're all just walking each other home, like, and that's it. Like as women, we're just walking each other home, you know, Mm -hmm. and like that's my role, like as a woman in recovery, when I meet women in recovery, right. It's an honor. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for the tears. (laughs) Yeah. I think you cannot cry. (laughs) Yeah, I know. For a while there, I was like every podcast, I was like, okay, here we go. Cry it again. But you know, but that's beautiful. I've never heard that. And I will, I will use that. And I will share that. I love that, that we're all, um, we are because we we just come along. If we can, if we can be at that place that we look at each other as coming alongside someone, Mm-hmm. Instead of being across the table, like saying, oh, well, like, or being a hierarchy, like I'm better than you. I just, and I say that in my business all the time. I just come alongside with you. I figure out how I can help you. I share some knowledge, but mm-hmm. I'm right here with you. And totally. so that's, totally. that's awesome. So thanks, Abigail. All yeah. the stuff will be in the show notes, the places that you could find Abigail. And again, the, the different things that we shared, but thank you so much yeah. for continuing you. this conversation. And thank you listeners for coming back. Please do share. These are important um, podcasts that other people need to hear. Rate and review because that's how we get uh, seen more and come back next time for an exciting podcast. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head over to iTunes and leave me a five-star review. Share it with others and make sure you hit the subscribe button so you don't miss a thing. I've got a tribe over on Facebook, so head over there and search for Juggling the Chaos of Recovery Podcast Tribe. And do you know somebody who has a story, a story to share, a story of recovery and hope? Please let me know as I'd love to feature them as a guest on one of these next upcoming podcasts. And perhaps you're looking for a community of like-minded, collaborative, and supportive people who cheer each other on as we strive to improve our lives. If that sounds like something you've been looking for, schedule some time with me. You'll find the links in the show notes. Let's talk and let me help you find your way. And I'm here to tell you that you're worth it.